And this morning, we are continuing a series of standalone sermons from our church covenant. A church covenant is essentially a summary of what we understand the Bible to teach about our responsibilities to God and to one another. They're promises that we make to one another according to God's word and by God's grace. And so if our statement of faith as a church is what we say we believe, well, then our church covenant is how we promise by God's grace to live in light of what we say we believe. And so we have 10 promises in our church covenant to one another. The members of this church have promised by God's grace that we would, albeit never perfectly, but endeavor to pursue these things for one another's spiritual good. Two weeks ago, we considered what it was to have unity, that we are eager to pursue the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, that we want to be a people who are united. Jesus prayed in John 17 that the world would know that we are His if we are united with one another. And then we saw last week the promise that we have to love one another. And that love is an active love. It's not a theoretical love. And it's not merely a love that, of how we feel about certain people. Well, I like them and I don't really like them. Well, I'll love them because they're easy to love, but I don't know that I'm going to love them very well because they're a little harder to love. It is an objective reality being brought about in our lives by Christ and of being motivated by his very example in laying down his lives for us. And so our love is an active love to one another. It is a walking love. That is that all of our lives, as we walk together, we aim to love one another. It is a speaking love that all of our discipleship in the church, that is helping one another to follow Jesus, is at its most fundamental level a word-centered love. That it's rooted in God's word. Any act of love that is contrary to God's word is not love, that is violence. True love is rooted in God's word. The third promise in our church covenant, which we're going to consider this morning, is what it looks like to gather together regularly. It says, we will not neglect to gather together regularly as scripture commands. And that command comes directly from Hebrews chapter 10. Now, if you were to look at the entire New Testament, and you were to begin to cobble together what it looks like for a church to gather together, what you would find is that New Testament Christians are no longer gathering on Saturday night, the Sabbath. They're now gathering on the first day of the week in keeping with the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has brought about and inaugurated a new creation. The church is a new creation people. And we gather on the first day of the week as the church is held because because we are a foretaste of that new creation yet to come. And on that first day of the week, we find that they bring their gifts to help those who are in need, that is, tithes and offerings, as the church is regularly referred to it. That they sit under the apostolic teaching, that is, what is the teaching of the apostles, according to what is revealed in the Old Testament, consummated in Christ. That the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. So we gather on the first day of the week to sit under the teaching of the word. 
We also gather on the, on the first day of the week to fellowship together. And it's not that this fellowship doesn't leak out throughout the rest of the week. This is when the whole body comes together. And that whole body is identified and constituted, as we see in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, by the Lord's Supper. How do you know who Jesus' people are? It's those who have been baptized according to a profession of faith and now gather together to eat a meal together. And that's what we do. We come together for a fellowship meal. That's the way that Paul talks about it. He uses the word koinonia. It's fellowship with one another. And so that is why the, ref the Reformers talked about true churches being those who, where you could find the right preaching of the gospel and you would find the right administration of the sacraments. That underneath all of that is a true gospel being preached, aimed to be lived out, and of the fellowship of the saints united in Christ. And the church has historically, beginning in all through Acts and elsewhere in the New Testament, done this on the first day of the week, and that would become the catalyst for their discipleship throughout the week. But Hebrews is going to address it with a little bit more specificity. It's going to be more specific, and I want to spend time there this morning. Because there are, well, let me put it this way. There are a number of, of people perhaps even here in, in this sanctuary that, that I want to address. There are perhaps some of you who have been told along the way that, that going to church no more makes you a Christian than parking in a garage makes you a car. And yet that seems to contradict what the church fathers said, and that is there is no salvation outside of the church. So which is it? Now, what the church fathers meant by that was not what our Roman Catholic friends mean by that. That you go to church, and the church dispenses God's grace like spigots through the seven sacraments, and if you partake of those sacraments and receive his grace, then you can become more and more like Jesus, that you can shave off a few years in purgatory and one day stand justified before him. That is not what the Bible teaches. That is a false gospel, and that is not at all what the church fathers meant. What they meant is what the author of Hebrews meant. You don't go to church in order to be saved, but you do go to church in order to be assured that you are in fact saved. In other words, there is no category in the Bible for an unchurched Christian. There's no category for it. Theoretically, can it happen? Can you have somebody outside of the church who is trusted in Christ, who will stand before him? Perhaps. But the New Testament doesn't have a category for that. And that is because... Christ cannot be severed from his body. To say that you love Jesus, but you don't really like or want his church is to decapitate the head from his body and the two cannot be severed. To love Jesus is to love his church. And we're going to see that in the word this morning. But I also want to address some of you who perhaps coming here this morning took all of God's grace because you have genuinely and deeply been wounded by the church. Either because of legalistic standards that have been lumped on you and crushed you, or because of abusive leadership, or because of the sins of fellow members, or whatever it may be. And it's left a distaste in your mouth and I just want to tell you that if that's you and you've wondered in this morning, I am so glad that you're here. 
And I don't want to take at all your past sufferings as being very real suffering. And I want to affirm you and encourage you that though there is no church that is perfect, every church will wound, every church will bite, every church will do that inevitably. That's why Jesus has to command us to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us because it happens. But though no church is perfect, Jesus is perfect. And though the church may let you down and may disappoint you and may talk a bigger game than it's able to live out at times, Jesus will never let you down. And Jesus never merely talks a big game. He does everything he says, and he is everything he says he is. So even if you have been wounded by the church, oh, friend, listen to me, don't trust in the church. Trust in Jesus. Thirdly, I want to address the many members in our own church. Because of you, sermons like this are a joy to preach. It's not a come-to-Jesus sermon. It's not a rebuking or even a really hard-exhorting sermon. Because by and large, the members of this church, you guys are so faithful to gather together, and that is evidence of God's grace. And I want to I see that little ember rise up in a greater flame, and I want to see it flame up and spread and grow. And so I want to encourage you in the faithfulness that God in his grace has already brought about in, in, in our church and to pray that we would keep growing in that grace so that God would be glorified in this body. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. As you heard me say, Hannah read 19 to 25. We're going to spend most of our time in those verses. In fact, we are going to focus in, really, on verses 24 and 25. But I want to do 19 through 25, just for the sake of context. 24 and 25 are specifically addressing not neglecting to meet together. And that's what our church covenant is quoting. So, what do we see here? Well, we're going to see two things. In verses 19 to 21, we're going to see our first point, and that is that Christ is our confidence. Christ is our confidence. But then we're going to see in verses 22 to 25 that Christ's work motivates our ministry. That Christ's work motivates our ministry. And there's a few things that I want to address up front as we dive into this. Because immediately when we start talking about gathering regularly with the church, church attendance, so to speak, well, there's immediately a, a whole host of questions that want to get asked. How often is enough? Is half enough? Is it a little bit more than half? Is it every Sunday? Is it three quarters of the time? Well, what about when I'm traveling? What about work? What about Immediately we jump to numbers and we want to know whether or not we're doing okay. And if your heart is anything like my heart, then those questions can tend not to be motivated primarily by the glory of God and the good of others. Those questions can be motivated by hedging our bets. Just give me the bare minimum that I need to know that I'm doing all right. 
the author of Hebrews is not going to let us get away with number counting and box checking. What he's going to do is raise our eyes to both the high privilege of gathering with God's people as God's people and of the high stakes that come with gathering together regularly. And when we begin to behold the weightiness of what it is that God is doing through his gathered church, then it begins to change the kinds of questions that we're asking about church attendance. And it's not the superficial, legalistic, box-checking, number-counting that perhaps some of you have encountered in your experience of the church. It is something bigger and deeper, and it is rooted in the grace of Christ and of what he is doing in his people through the gospel. That's what we're going to see now in Hebrews 10. So Christ motivates, or, or Christ is our confidence, and Christ's work motivates our ministry. Glance down at the text beginning in verse 19. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a priest over the house of God. Those verses right there, 19 to 21, they're summarizing the main points of the third section of the book of Hebrews. And the section goes something like this, that the new covenant in Christ is superior in every single way to the old covenant. And the reason that the new covenant is superior to the old covenant is because it was enacted on better promises in Christ. So when we're talking about the Old Covenant, we're talking about all those things we see in the Old Testament. You see the nation of Israel, a tabernacle and a temple. You see a priesthood. You see ceremonies and sacrifices. What he's saying is all of those are but patterns and types and shadows. That they are not the ultimate end. They're all pointing to something bigger, something greater. They're pointing to the real thing. So if you were to take a flashlight and you were to shine it on your hand up on the wall, you would see a shadow like maybe you see somewhere back there of my hand. And you would look at it and you would go, I know that's a hand. But is it really a hand? Well, of course not. It's a shadow of a hand. It's pointing to something bigger and better and more real. It's a shadow that's pointing to the substance. That is what the old covenant is doing. It's always looking forward. It's never meant to be an end in itself. And so Christ, when he comes, he now becomes the fulfillment and the yes and the amen of all of those promises and all of those forward-looking revelations that we find under the old covenant that he's the true tabernacle, he's the true and better priest, that his offering is the once and for all offering. All of it was anticipating Christ. He is the object of our hope. That's why we are not justified anymore by works of the law. No man can be, but only by faith in Christ. He is the one to whom the whole Bible is pointing. He is supreme over everything. That's the point. And that is what Hebrews 19 and 21 are summarizing. And so he begins in verse 19, he says, therefore, brothers, this is a common way for the authors to refer to this church that he's writing to. Chapter three, he calls them holy brothers. Later in that chapter, he calls them brothers again. And then in chapter six, verse nine, he calls them beloved. Those who are beloved of God. 
It is gentle and familial. And so even though he's giving an exhortation, he's, go, he's giving it as if these are my brothers and sisters. We're family. And I'm giving you this in love and I'm doing it gently. And not only that, but he is including himself in it. He's not standing on a pedestal, looking down on them as if this is something that, that they need to consider. He's going, listen, we're all in this together. You see that in a continual Repetition of we and us. He includes himself in his exhortation. And then notice in 19 and 21, you see a phrase repeated. Therefore, brothers, since we have. Beginning of verse 21, since we have. These two phrases are going to introduce two gospel truths that motivate our obedience to Christ. That first one in verse 19 is concerned with Christ's offering. The second one in verse 21 is concerned with Christ's office. So we're going to see the author pointing to two things in 19 and 21, to Christ's offering and to Christ's office. And these are great gospel motivators for everything that is going to follow. Look at 19 and 20. Let's consider Christ's offering. He says, since we have something, what do we have? He says here, we have confidence. Perhaps it might even be better translated authorization. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then he explains what he means by the blood of Jesus. Here's what I mean, that he has opened a new way that is a way that has not previously existed that there is no other way, this is the only way, and it is the way that leads to life. And he has opened it up for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. That by his blood, Jesus Christ is open for sinners, for all those who repent and trust in him. He has secured an eternal redemption for us. He has forever entered the holy places for us. And he now appears in the presence of God for us. You can see that in the previous four chapters. And this means three things for us, according to these two verses. It means, first of all, that if we are in Christ, we get to go where Christ has gone. We get to go into the heavenly places. A couple chapters earlier, the author talks about what these heavenly places are. He says, it's not a, it's not a holy place that's created with human hands, but rather it is heaven itself where God is. It's not a facsimile and a copy like what Israel had in the tabernacle in the temple. It's the real thing. That is where Jesus has gone. And if we're in Christ, we get to go where he's gone. But secondly, we get there in the same way that Christ got there. And that is by the torn flesh of his body and his shed blood. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, that he has entered once and for all, verse 12, into the holy places, not by the means of bloods and goats and calves. Those were all shadows pointing to a greater reality, but by means of his own blood. That's what they were pointing to. Thus securing an eternal redemption. That he has entered into a greater and more perfect tent, it says. One that's not of this creation. One that is of a new creation. That is heaven where God dwells. That is where he's gone and we get to go there. And we get there the same way that Christ gets there. That is by his torn flesh and shed blood. And then thirdly and finally, we enter there with the same confidence as Christ. 
that we get to enter the holy places and stand face to face with the holy God. Revelation 22 says that we get to see him face to face with no less confidence than the very son of God has to stand before his father because we are safe and secure in Jesus. That's what 19 and 20 is all about. And so we are motivated by Christ's offering, that he has gained us free and open and unfettered access to the Father, whereas it was once shut off from us. And that throne that was once a great object of fear and of condemnation and of judgment now becomes one of great confidence and of hope and of grace and of mercy in Christ because he stands at the right hand of the Father, living always to make intercession for us. And that is why our confidence is not only in his offering, but according to verse 21, we are also motivated by his office. We have a great priest over the house of God. That our confidence is not only in the blood of Christ, but it is in the fact that no more offerings for our sin will ever need to be made. The Jesus' three words on the cross, it is finished, is applied to every single sinner who has come to repent and believe in Christ. There's no more atonement to be made. There are no good works to tip the scales of balance in your favor. There is no more sacrifices to be offered, neither of bulls and goats, nor of your own good works as acts of worship that can somehow commend you more to God in addition to what Christ has already done. His sacrifice is once and for all. And so Christ is not only our perfect sacrifice, but he is our great priest. And the reason that he's great is because he lives forever. Listen to this, Hebrews 7, verses 24 and 25. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, that is because he holds his priesthood permanently on, on, and on account of the fact that he continues forever. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, completely, totally, every square inch of humanity, those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. As one pastor has said, there is not one of you in here who is a Christian who has not had the son mention your name to his father. That's who I want. And on the basis of his perfect righteousness and his shed blood, the father says, according to the covenant of redemption that he made with him before the foundation of the world, you got it. He's yours. That's why Jesus says, all that the Father has given to me, I will lose not one. He is a great high priest. That he has not only shed his blood for us, but he stands to pray for us. And he mentions our names to the Father, always continually interceding for us. And the Father will not deny anything that the Son asks of him. And he has asked for you, believer. Oh, that is really good news. That's why it's interesting. Some of you, as, you've, as I've done your membership interviews, some of you prospective members over the last month or so, 
If you're a visitor with us, when someone seeks to become a member of the church, the elders sit down and do a membership interview with them. And one of the things that we have them do is share the gospel with us. What do you understand to be the good news of Jesus Christ? And, and I'm always pleased to hear about God as creator and, and of man who has been created in God's image for the glory of God. And yet man chose to disobey God. And because Adam did so, death and sin has spread to all mankind. And yet God in his grace and mercy has sent his son to live, as Matt explained earlier, a perfect life in our place, to die a death that we deserved and to be raised by the Father in the power of the Spirit from the dead because death could have no hold over him. I love, I get to preach that all the time, but I love it when prospective members get to preach that back to me. But here's what's interesting. One of the things that, I, that we commonly omit when we talk about the gospel is what is Jesus doing now? And how is that really good news? Verse 21 tells us, we have a great priest and he is over the household of God. He has asked for you. The father has given you to him. He will not lose you and he will continually forever without fail intercede for you. You are no less secure than the son is any less likely to have his prayers denied by his father. That is security. And that's what we have in Christ. And so he says that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. And so therefore, verse 22, what does he say? Let us draw near. Let us draw near, he says. Verse 22 is the first verse of what some have called the lettuce patch of the Bible. Notice this verse 22, lettuce. Verse 23, lettuce. Verse 24, lettuce. The author is saying, since we have such a great confidence, verse 19, and since we have such a great priest, verse 21, let us live out our faith as a church, as the house of God in these particular ways. And I want you to notice that each of these lettuces in verses 22, 23, and 24, each one corresponds to one of the virtues in the triad of Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. You see, in verse 22, we want to draw near with a true heart and full assurance of what? Faith. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our what? Hope. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to what? Love. The author is saying the same thing as Paul. That you may be really gifted and there's all kinds of things that you've got, but faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love, which is why we're going to spend most of our time in verses 24 and 25. Why does he say the greatest of these is love? It's because faith one day is going to give way to sight if you're a believer and you won't need to exercise faith anymore. It's temporary. Hope is one day going to be realized at the coming of Christ and you won't have to hope anymore. It'll be here. But love, love endures forever because God is love and we imitate God. That's why love is the greatest of the three. Because it's the only one of the three that is eternal. 
And that is what's to mark our fellowship. Let's consider each one of these. I'm only going to spend a few moments in verse 22 and 23, and then I'll close out the rest of our time considering our gathering together in verse 24 and 25. Verse 22 is speaking about our worship. It says, let us draw near. He says, we're to draw near. How? With true heart and full assurance of faith. Our hearts can lead us to either draw near to God or to draw away from God. And it all depends on where your heart finds its assurance. If your heart finds its assurance in the things that you do for God, then your heart will have little assurance. Because unless you're as good as God and as righteous as Christ, then all evidences of your sin, including that little sliver that Ryan Adams confessed on our behalf in the prayer of confession today, should reduce that to go, am I even a Christian? If that is where you're finding your assurance. That a heart with little assurance will say, you can't really draw near to God. Not yet, at least. You need to get your sin under control first. You're not fervent enough in your worship and your devotion yet. You haven't spent enough time in your quiet times. Get a few good quiet times in, and then we'll talk. Oh, when this happens, when your heart talks to you in this way, that is your heart being untrue. Because it is dealing with half-truths. Yes, it's true that you're a sinner in need of grace, but it fails to give you the whole truth, and that is to point you to Christ. And so, yes, it might be true that you need to overcome certain sins in your life, and it might be true that your devotion could certainly be more fervent, and it might be true that you need to spend more time meditating on God's Word. I imagine that's true for every single one of us. But if your heart stops there, then your heart isn't being true. It's dealing only with half-truths. The true heart says, yes, these things may be true of you, but your assurance isn't found ultimately in what you do for God. Your assurance is found in what God has done for you in Christ. Your assurance is not even found in your faith. We don't have faith in our faith. Our assurance is found in the object of our faith, and that is Christ Jesus alone and what he has done. See also verses 19, 20, and 21. You see how he's building his argument all based on those gospel promises. He's going to keep coming back to them over and over. Right? So that's the root of the lettuce patch, so to speak. And what has he done for you? What has God done for you in Christ? Well, he says two things in verse 22. That he has, first of all, sprinkled your heart clean. In other words, your heart cannot condemn you anymore. Secondly, he has washed your body. That's temple imagery that just says you've been purified by Christ. That your that your conscience is clear and you have been purified by the blood of Christ, that you have been given new life by the power of the Spirit. And if all of these things are true, then our assurance to draw near, as we're commanded in verse 22, isn't ultimately rooted in the holiness of our lives or the fervency of our devotion or anything else that we do for God. Our assurance to draw near is by faith alone in the sufficiency of Christ's offering and in the permanence of Christ's office. He is the object of our faith. And so I wonder, brother or sister or friend, do you find yourself this morning more prone to draw near to God 
or to have your heart draw you away from God. If your heart is drawn away from God and you are constantly questioning your worthiness, if you're constantly questioning whether or not you are authorized to enter the holy places, oh, then friend, you have... You are looking too much at yourself and you are not looking at Christ. Look to Christ. This was a conversation that I had with one of my daughters who had questions about how can I know? How can I know that I've been saved? How can I know that God loves me? How can I know that I won't go to hell? And the answer is, don't look to yourself. Look to Jesus. Oh, perhaps some of you here, children, perhaps some of you here, you've had some of those same questions as your mom and dad share the gospel with you. And as, as you sit in this gathering and you endure really long sermons by Pastor Jeff, and you do great, you may ask similar questions. Listen, whether you're four or seven or 10 or 14 or however old you are, listen to this. And I hope that your parents are repeating this at home. Don't look at what you do for God. Look at Christ. Look at the blood that he shed for you because the Father loves you. And look at what Jesus is doing now and that is that if you have love for Christ and you have trusted in him, it may very well be that the Father has asked, or the Son has asked the Father for you. Trust in Jesus. Let Jesus be the object of your faith. And then in verse 23, he's not only going to tell us that we need to draw near in faith, but also we need to hold fast to our hope. So verse 22 is speaking about our worship, how it is that we draw near. That is not on the basis of what we do, but what Christ has done. Verse 23 is speaking about our perseverance. It is standing firm and unwavering in those. Here's how it's essentially, here's the argument that he's making, that since we have such a great confidence and since we have such a great priest, verses 19 to 21, let us therefore hold fast the confession of our hope, meaning that we're to demonstrate with our lives a firm confidence in the gospel and we're to do so according to verse 23, without wavering. That is meant to be provocative language. You're meant to go, whoa, that's pretty extreme, right? Because what he's saying is that the demonstration of our hope in the promises of God is to be as unwavering and unchanging as the God who promises. We say that again, because that's tweetable. The demonstration of our hope in the promises of God is to be as unwavering and as unchanging as the God who promises. Now, will that be reality as a sinner on this side of the resurrection? No, but that is what we aim to do by God's grace is that we seek to hold fast what we say is true about Christ and about the gospel and to not be a double-minded man that James talks about in James chapter 1, always swayed to this side or that by whatever doctrine, new doctrine, or new idea comes our way. Or if we're anything like the congregation here when suffering comes our way because obedience to Christ leads to being hated for the gospel. 
Stand firm. In fact, he says, that's exactly what you've been doing. Look at verse 34. He says, you even had compassion on those who prison and, and you even joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's the hope that he's talking about. Stand firm that you have something better waiting for you in Christ than what you have in this life. And let that future reality govern and shape the way you walk today. And let's walk lockstep together, unwaveringly, as faithful and as unchanging as God is unwavering and unchanging because he will not fail and his promises will never fail. So we are to hold fast our confession. But thirdly, not only are we to draw near and not only are we to hold fast, not only is our worship to be through Christ by faith, and not only are we to persevere through this life into the next, but thirdly, we are to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Look at what he says at the very beginning. He says, let us consider, right? So on the basis of verses 19, 20, and 21, on the basis of Christ's sufficient offering and on the basis of his permanent office, let us, verse 24, consider how to stir up one another. I used to love iced tea. I don't like it now. It's nasty. And I'm quietly judging you if you like it. But I used to like it back in my spiritually immature days. Just joking. And I would go to El Matador out there on 380 University in El Matador. I still love El Matador. You can judge me all you want. I don't care. And I'd go to El Matador and I'd get cheese enchiladas and I would get a large iced tea and I would grab a few sugar packets and I would pour the sugar into the tea because plain tea is even worse than sweet tea. So you get a little sweet tea working. But what happens? You stir it in and then what happens to that sugar eventually? What happens? It settles down into the bottom of the glass, doesn't it? And what do you have to do to sweeten your tea again? You got to stir it up. It's the same image that the author of Hebrews is talking about here. There are times where we are tempted to grow apathetic and let the gospel fall to the side, that our sense of urgency and the sweetness of the Christian life begins to wane and we have to stir one another up. What are we stirring up in one another? We're stirring up the truth of the gospel, that good news that we just read about in verse 19 about the sufficient offering of Christ and about the good news of what he's doing now as the great priest over the household of God. And we continually remind and stir one another up in these glorious truths. And how do we do that? What do we do it for? What we see here, we do it for love and good works. That is that we are to stir one another up so that we might in each one of our lives validate the transforming power of the gospel through our obedience to Christ. But how do we do this? So we've seen that, okay, we need to consider something. What do we need to consider? We need to consider how to stir one another up. What are we stirring one another up with? We're stirring one another up with the truth of the gospel. And what are we stirring one another up for? Oh, so that we grow in grace and in love and good works and Christian love and good works toward others. 
But how are we to do this? Well, the author gives us our answer. By not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. I want you to notice a couple things here. That participle there, not neglecting, you say, wait a minute, part of, part of what? I've been in English in a long time. A participle is, a, is something that participates in the main verb. So if I say, I'm going to go to church, go would be the main verb. And I say, walking, skipping, and driving, I go to church. The walking, the skipping, and the driving are participles. They describe what my going looks like. And that's exactly what the author's doing here. What does this stirring up look like? Well, it looks like not neglecting something. What does it look like not neglecting? Meeting together. But it also looks like something else. That it looks like encouraging. That to stir is to gather and to gather is to encourage. And so, I think it's really interesting in verse 25 that the author, using this nevit example, you notice he puts encouraging and opposition to neglecting. And by doing so, the author is saying that those who neglect gathering regularly with the church actually discourage their fellow church members. And those who habitually gather with the church truly encourage their fellow church members, but encourage them toward what? They encourage them toward Christian love and good works toward others. That is the whole point. And so he uses gathering together and encouraging one another as synonyms. So if you were to say on Sunday morning, we're going to go to church. According to Hebrews 10, that would be the same as saying, we're going to go encourage the brothers and sisters. It means the same thing. It's not just, hey, we're going to go hear some preaching. Not, hey, we're just going to go sing some songs. It's that I have a weight of responsibility for my brothers and sisters, and they have responsibility for me. And we're not going to neglect this because I've got a job, and my job is to encourage. I'm going to encourage with my presence. I'm going to encourage with my generosity. I'm going to encourage in my singing. I'm going to encourage in my, in my speaking. I'm going to encourage in my lingering. I'm going to encourage in my greeting. I'm going to encourage in my praying. And I can do all of that when I gather with the church. But underneath all of that is gathering, is encouraging. I wonder how many of you, when you came in this morning, thought about the gathering of the church like this is really all about encouraging one another. Not about getting, but about giving. It's about giving encouragement. And to what end? Why do we need this encouragement? Well, this concern for encouraging one another accompanies a growing sense of urgency. Look at the end of verse 25. All the more as you see the day drawing near. He says all the more because it's already happening in this church, just like it's already happening in our church. But he's saying do it more, do it more and more and more. Grow in grace, grow in faithfulness. Why? Because the day is drawing near. Jesus is coming back. And we're all going to stand before him one day. And that's exactly what he talks about in the paragraph to follow. 
So we gather regularly in order to stir up the gospel in one another's lives so that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will, each one of us, that we will have demonstrated the kind of fruit, the kind of Christian love and of good works toward others that testifies to the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. That the root of verses 19, 20, and 21 has been producing this kind of fruit in our lives and it validates that we have in fact drawn near in faith in Christ, that we have persevered in our hope and that we've not neglected to gather together. Well, the end of verse 25, seeing the day drawing near, that just sets up this next section. Why is it so important to stir up one another to growing obedience to Christ? And the answer is because the habit of some to neglect to meet together is a precursor to apostasy. Look at this. Verse 26, that if we keep on sinning deliberately, even after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that is, you've heard the gospel, you maybe even profess the gospel, it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. He's talking about in that day that is yet drawing near, now that day is upon us. And on that day, there's no plan B for you. Right? Christ has come once to save, and he's coming again to judge. And on that day, if you did not fully trust in Christ, and you love sin more than Savior, and that characterizes your life, then there is not a plan B or a second way for you when you stand before Jesus on that day. And that's a terrifying notion. But rather, verse 27, it says, only a fearful expectation that what it is that they can expect it's not a second chance or that God will provide some other way. What they should expect, according to verse 27, is judgment and a fury of consuming fire. You say, well, maybe God will be lenient on, these, on a lot of these nominal Christians, these Christians in name only. I mean, they went to church Christmas and Easter and popped in every now and then and at least said they were Christian when they filled out their voter registration and all those kinds of things. Well, the author asks in verse 28, how lenient was God against those who violated his law under the old covenant? Do you notice verse 28? He says, they died without mercy. How much worse than verse 29? How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? This is how the Bible speaks of nominal Christianity. The author is not talking about non-Christians outside the church. He's talking about those who flit around the edges of the church and are Christian in name only. He's talking about the Bible belt. And he says that to use the name of Jesus on your lips, to say you love him and to say that you trust his gospel, but to go on living and sinning deliberately is to trample Jesus, profane his blood, and outrage his spirit. That's not a very popular message. You're not going to build a big church preaching that. But that is what the Bible has to say to those who play fast and loose with Jesus. Who just don't think there's really anything great at stake. 
I was 15 years old. I threw my stick in the fire. I nailed my confession to that wooden cross. I prayed the prayer. I walked the aisle. I've got everything I need. Hell insurance in my pocket. I'm good to go. Hebrews 10 goes, whoa, wait a minute. Are you? This should stop us and be sober-minded because according to verse 30, God will judge justly. And he's not just going to judge non-believers, but he will at the end of verse 30, judge, see that? His people, you and me. And what is he judging for? That he will reveal in that day whether or not the life of Christ is truly in us. He will judge in that day whether our lives, though always imperfectly, have manifested the transforming power of the gospel as we grow in Christian love and of good deeds toward others. Never looking to those things to save us. We are justified by faith alone, but that justifying faith is never alone. It is always accompanied by fruit that looks and smells and talks a lot like Jesus. And it grows over time. So verse 31, and this should make us approach this with sober-mindedness. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what the author means when he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near there at the end of verse 25. There is a lot at stake in our gathering together regularly, isn't there? We don't take it lightly. It's a big deal. And it's not a big deal because of box checking and number counting. It's a big deal because it's a high calling and there are high stakes to following Jesus. And the mechanism whereby God has encourages Believers to continually draw near and to persevere in this life and to grow in the very fruits that demonstrate the transforming power of the gospel in our life is the local church. And not just a random coffee or not just a spiritual conversation near the produce section with another Christian. It is committed relationships with particular Christians in a particular church under particular leaders who know you and give an account for you. That is the idea that the author of Hebrews has here. So let's not think about numbers. How much is enough? Half the Sundays, more than half? Wrong question. The question that the author wants us to ask in light of all of this is not how often is enough. He wants us to ask what's at stake. We don't think about that enough. Oh, maybe we'll go, maybe we won't. No, it was a late night, Saturday night. We went out to a late concert. We're not really going to go on Sunday. Oh, we're traveling. It's vacation. We don't go on Sunday. We come back from vacation. We're tired from vacation. We don't go again. Maybe we miss a few more. I mean, but you know, it's, we go more often than we don't. That's not the issue. What is at stake? And the reality is, is that all of us orient our lives around those things which we consider to be of the highest stakes of our money and our jobs and our children and our families. How do we not think the same way about gathering regularly with the church if Hebrews 10 is true? We don't need to think in terms of superficial numbers and box checking. We need to think theologically about what is at stake in our gathering. 
And if this is true, then that means I'm going to do everything that I can as often as I can to be with God's people so that I can be part of stirring them up in the gospel so that all of us might grow in Christian love and good deeds and stand arm in arm in the day that we stand and face Jesus and give an account for our lives and the transforming power of the gospel in it. In this way, the church is an assurance of salvation co-op. We're cooperating together. We don't get saved by going to church. But we gather with the church to ensure that we are, in fact, saved. That's the point of Hebrews 10. And I realize that for some of you, that sits a little uncomfortable. And that may be because you've been taught really poorly in the past. Or it may be because that's really convicting. And you don't know if you really have the bandwidth to start rethinking your relationship to the gathering to the church. But Hebrews 10 suggests you need to. Or perhaps some of you, and I hope most of us, it should be encouraging. There is a lot at stake. What a high calling Christ has given us. Let's take it seriously. And let's do everything that we can so that we might grow in grace together. So in conclusion, let me just give you a handful of applications. We'll finish with this. Number one. Faithful attenders confirm the power of the gospel. We saw that in verses 19 to 21. And they support evangelism, whereas non-attenders make evangelism harder. Christ taught that all people will know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. He prayed in John 17 for the unity of his churches so that, quote, the world may believe. Those are the first two promises in our church covenant, that we would have unity and that we would love. But if we fail to gather regularly, those two promises unravel and fray. And we obscure the gospel and it makes evangelism harder. What Jesus? That Jesus? Doesn't look like a very attractive Jesus to me. And so we want to make evangelism easier and support and confirm the power of the gospel by faithfully gathering together. One faithful pastor put it this way. Everyone who bears the name of Christ as affirmed by a local church by calling them a quote member, yet who willingly chooses to live their lives apart from the covenanted community of believers is practicing identity theft. They've taken Christ's name, but they don't honestly identify with his body, the church. Living accountable lives or unaccountable lives, they make evangelism harder for Christians because often they aren't living like Christians. Isn't it interesting how many people would say, I might live in the gospel if it wasn't for the Christians that I know. Number two, faithful attenders encourage fellow members, whereas non-attenders discourage them. That's straight from our text. That when a church allows non-attenders to remain members, they effectively gut the meaning of church membership. And when church leaders care little about church members that go missing, they turn the parable of the lost sheep on its head. They look at the one that's lost and they look down and they go, yeah, we still got 99. That's pretty good. But the parable goes, no, I'm going to leave the 99 together. They're going to care for one another and I'm going after the one. And so we want to encourage one another not discourage one another, by faithfully gathering together. Thirdly, faithful attenders comfort their leaders by their adherence to the truth, whereas non-attenders worry them. 
This may not seem that instinctive. But just a few chapters later in Hebrews, this is what the author writes. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. There is nothing more frightening as a pastor to know that I will give an account for every single soul under my care and not know where every one of those sheep are. What'd you do with the sheep that I gave you? Well, I did mostly for most of No, all of them. I don't know where they all are. I worked at a church previously whose membership role was more than double those who were gathering. And we sat around the table and we're going, well, what are we going to do with all of these people? We don't know where they are. Let's start following up one by one. He goes, no, one of them was, let's just wipe it all clean and make those who are here go through it again. But the question is, what happened to those sheep? Where are they? I gave them to you to take care of and you lost them. You were more concerned with the 99 than the one. Hebrews 13, 17 says that that these leaders, pastors and elders in the church, oh, they're to keep watch over you as men who will give an account the way that we love you and shepherd you and guide you and know you and mend you and lead you and feed you. Maybe I repeated that. I don't know. We do so not because we want your praise, not because we want to build big churches. We do so because we're going to stand before Jesus and give an account for our ministry. There's a lot at stake here, not just for you, but even for the elders of our church. And Hebrews 13, 17 goes on to say this, let them do this with joy, not with groaning. That would be no advantage to you. By gathering together regularly and coming here, you know what you enable the elders of this church to do? It enables us to know you and see you and talk to you and pray for you and have a better idea of how you're doing so that we might better lead and feed and shepherd you. There's nothing more frightening to this pastor than when a sheep goes missing and I don't know where they are and they're not returning my call. That is scary. So we love one another by gathering together, but members of a church love their leaders by gathering together regularly. I'm so encouraged by the number of you in here. If you're out of town or you've got something happening, you'll send one of us a text and you'll go, hey, I'm not going to be there this morning. You can pray for us in this way. That is not burdensome. That swells me with joy because I know where you are. I know how you're doing and I know how I can help you. I love it. I want us to continue to grow in grace in that way. So faithful pastors and elders feel responsible for the spiritual condition of every member of the flock. And those who regularly gather with the church make pastoring a joy. Next, faithful attenders will steadily grow in respect to their salvation, whereas non-attenders will not. I've never known a believer who does not gather regularly with a gospel-preaching church who is also growing in maturity and grace. That we are to be like, as Peter says, newborn infants who long for the pure spiritual milk that by it we may grow up into salvation. And this isn't primarily an individual responsibility you got in your quiet time. This is a corporate reality. Let us draw near by faith in Christ. And so God has appointed specific means, and you see this throughout the New Testament, of how we are to grow in our faith. 
We want to hear the word of God preached. We want to sing the word to one another. Paul writes in Ephesians, that's how the word of Christ dwells in us richly. Or Matt, is that Colossians? You fail. (laughs) We want to partake of the Lord's Supper together. And we do that all together. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, he Paul rebukes the church for leaving people out of the supper. Why does everybody have to be there for the supper? Because that's who the church is. Whoever's at the table, that's who the church is. And it's a sign of our unity together in Christ, our koinonia, our fellowship. So we all want to be there for the supper. And that feeds us and encourages us. And we want to serve the body of Christ as needs arise. Listen, these are just a few examples of God's grace to us for our sanctification. And these means of grace are available primarily, and some of them exclusively, to those who gather faithfully with the church. Lastly, faithful attenders will be helped to persevere in faith, whereas non-attenders endanger their souls. While it may be true that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, it is also true that saving faith is never alone. It is accompanied by a continually drawing near to Christ in faith, by a holding fast to our hope, and by a growing in Christian love and good works toward others. And so one of God's great purposes for a local church is to guard us from apostasy, that is falling away from the faith, and help us persevere in saving faith. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. I've told you this before. I've been doing ministry now for 20 years. I did college ministry for a long time. I've seen lots of young people come to Christ, begin following Christ. And I've seen many who have since stopped following Jesus. And if you were to trace it back, it wasn't ultimately an intellectual issue. It wasn't because they started reading Rob Bell. It wasn't because of any of those kinds of things. It was because they didn't take Hebrews 10 seriously. They stopped gathering with the church in a month, then a few months, Then a couple years roll by and they look up and they go, I don't really know that I'm a Christian anymore. And part of it is because what they've gathered into their life and its place is their own desires. And now it becomes really, really hard to line up God's word with what I really want in life. And that doesn't include the church. Most people fall away from Christianity, not because of intellectual problems, but because of moral problems. Moral problems just justify intellectual problems. But there's deeper things going on. And for most of those, you can trace it back to the neglect of the church. Sadly. That's why Hebrews 3 says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another. Every day, as long as it's called today. In other words, don't wait. Jesus could be coming back any time. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For if we have come to for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. See also Hebrews 10:19. What is our confidence? It's the blood of Jesus. So we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10:19. Verse 35, he says, Do not therefore throw away your confidence because it has a great reward. You have need of endurance. You're running a race, a marathon, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
Uh, we need other believers to help us fight sin and to follow Jesus, to help stimulate us with the gospel of Jesus Christ and of his great grace so that we might grow in Christian love and good works to others. And this means that while you don't join a church to be saved, you do join a church to help you grow in the assurance that you are saved. Because as the church father said, there is no salvation apart from the church. This is where the gospel is. It's where the people of God are. And if you want no part of that, then God will have no part with you. High calling and high stakes. Let's pray.